Well, let me add my, uh, I don't know what the, the right phrase is, my happy anniversary or happy birthday to us as a church. Uh, just a um, quick show of hands. Who was here on the first Sunday five years ago? There's a few, a few, good. Well, whether this is your 261st Sunday or your second or first, whatever, we're, we're glad you're here. Uh, welcome. It's good to have you with us. What we do at Trinity, we've done this every year, is we start the year with what we call a value series. And so we focus in on some of the values that we want to define and drive our church. And so every January, we look at the loving God values. We've got three values that kind of come under that loving God title. Sometime around May, we, we then look at the loving one another uh, values. And then September, we look at the loving our neighbor values. So it's kind of a rhythm, part of the church. We like to keep the values uh, kind of in front of our, our eyes, you know, keep us thinking about them. And so every January, we think about loving God, which means we start the year with a series that we hope will really help us to love God more and live for God more in the coming year. Now, this year we were talking about it and we, we decided, let's take all three of the values, there's three loving God values at, at Trinity, and let's think about all three of them, but what's going to tie it together this year and make this one uh, unique for this year is that we're thinking about loving God together, okay, loving God together, because I suppose out of all the values, this is the one where we are in, uh, in danger of individualizing uh, th- this whole idea. You know, it's such a, a Western thing to think about my personal spirituality. You know, my own private quiet times, my own private Bible reading, my own private prayer life, and so on. And it, and it can become a very much uh, an individual. Having a mayor, aren't we? Eh? <laughs> Um, it could become a very individual thing where it's just like, you know, it's, it's my secret thing over here where I'm having a relationship with God, but then my connection with everyone else is sort of public and, and separate. And actually, when we read through the Bible, we don't see this idea of a private, individual, personal spirituality because what happens is God saves us and he rescues us and he brings us into the body of Christ. We're, we're saved to love God together. And so that's what we want to be uh, thinking about this month as we think about the Bible, we think about prayer, we think about how we live our lives. We want to think about loving God together. There's an old Chinese proverb, apparently, I don't read or speak Chinese, but there's an old Chinese proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. That's what we're really thinking about, isn't it? We, we want to go far. We don't want to just have a burst of speed and you know, have a spiritual high for a couple of weeks and then fade. We want to live for the Lord and love him and live in response to his love long term. And so we need each other. We want to go together. And that's a, a beautiful thing about a church community, the connections that we can enjoy, the friendships, like Andy said at the start, to look out and see people that, that I love, that I care about, that I feel connected to. This is an incredible privilege. Let me just read you a quote from uh, Paul Tripp, one of my uh, favorite authors. Paul Tripp, uh, I should put this on the PowerPoint. I haven't done. I'll put it in the church email for you. Uh, but he says this in one of his books, we weren't created to be independent autonomous or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God and in a loving and humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects. 
Yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all that we need within ourselves. So we settle for relationships that never go beneath the casual. We defend ourselves when the people around us point out a weakness or a wrong. We hold our struggles within, not taking advantage of the resources God has given us. That's what this series is about, is recognizing that for us to love God, we need to be loving God together. If you go through the New Testament, uh, the, the books that were written kind of after Jesus came and that focus in on, on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what it means for us to be the church, you'll find that there are a whole cluster of pictures or images of the church. There's the, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, uh, the church as a building, the church as a flock of sheep, the church uh, as the branches of a vine, and, and some others too. But it, if you think about it, each one of those images, each one of those analogies has two elements to it, to a greater or lesser extent. In every case, there's a connection to Christ. So we are the bride, he is the bridegroom. Or we are the body, he is the head. Or uh, we are uh, the building, the living stones, but he's the chief cornerstone. Or we're the flock, but he's the good shepherd. What was the other one? We're the branches, he's the vine. And so in every case, there's a, a sense in which our connection to him is absolutely critical. And that's the main part of each one of those images. But also, in each case, to a greater or lesser extent, there's a us together sense to that image. We are not a good shepherd with his sheep, singular. We are a flock of sheep with one another. We're not just a stone. We are living stones being built up together. We're a, a, an interconnected network of branches connected to the vine. We are uh, the, the bride of Christ collectively. And maybe the strongest image in terms of the togetherness part of it is the body of Christ. There's a whole passage in Corinthians that talks about the body and it says the, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the ear cannot say to the eye because I'm not an eye, I'm not important. Every part of the body of Christ is important. We need each other. And so we're going to be thinking about the values of loving God and we're going to be thinking about them in terms of those values working themselves out together. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to go through the three values, and today's just the introduction. So next week, we're going to jump to the second one. We're going to think about prayer in order to introduce the week of prayer. Then we'll come back and we'll think about pursuing God in the Bible, and then we'll finish up with the third one, uh, which of course I've memorized, which is reflecting his character in every area of our lives. If you don't have one of these cards, by the way, uh, there's no excuse. We've got thousands of them. And one of these cards with the values written on makes a great bookmark for your Bible, and it helps you to pray for what it is we're trying to do and be as a church. They're out there on the table. So what I want to do today is look at two verses. Okay, well, uh, it's hard for me to look at two verses. You probably can tell I, I kind of like big chunks of Bible. But, but the, as best I can, I want us to zero in on two verses that are going to teach us something very specific about loving God together. Something that I hope will be helpful, something that will be challenging, hopefully something that will be encouraging. From my favorite book in the Bible, which is the book of Hebrews. And if you have a, a church Bible, it's on page 1007. So the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians. 
a group of Christians that had, uh, they'd, they'd heard the gospel, the message had come to them. It had been preached, it had been powerfully kind of authenticated, they'd responded to it, they'd become followers of Jesus. And then after that, at a certain point, there was a persecution. There was opposition to them. They were imprisoned, some of them. Some of them had their property confiscated. They went through this really tough time. And you'd think that that kind of challenge would sort of break them apart. But actually, it, it kind of brought them together. It made them stronger as a community. But when the book of Hebrews was written, it was written in the next phase of their experience. A time where the persecution wasn't so in your face. It was much more subtle. It was sort of gentle. It was still there, but it wasn't kind of a threat hanging over every day. And they'd settled into this sort of malaise, this sort of steady plodding kind of Christianity. And somehow with this more gentle opposition... They were starting to drift. Maybe it relates to where we're at. We're not facing uh, imminent arrest yet for being followers of Jesus. But one of the challenges can be that just the gentle, silly little stuff, the cultural pressure, the comments at work, we can find ourselves starting to retreat, can't we? Starting to kind of hide and just go for the easy option. Instead of declaring that we're with Jesus, we can kind of drift backwards. And so Hebrews was written to these Christians that were in danger of drifting away from Jesus and it urges them to keep pressing on, to stick close to Jesus, to to recognize that he is better than anything else. There's no alternative out there that's better than Jesus. There's no safety to be found retreating into the old religion if it means pulling away from Jesus. And so as you go through the book, there's this incredible presentation of all that Jesus has done, who he is, what he's done. And you come to chapter 10, and it's kind of a a transition point in in the the whole message of Hebrews. And we're just going to look at one paragraph, but I said two verses, so I'll, I'll skim over the paragraph and just focus in on two verses. It starts at verse 19, and it starts off with a couple of, um, couple of kind of since this is true statements. All right, so first of all, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter. And then the next verse, since we have a great high priest. So it's talking about how Jesus has come from heaven into this world and he has gone to the cross. He's died. He's made this sacrifice. He's made this new way so that we can come. It's like a a free entry into the presence of God. And so we've got this access into the presence of God and we've got a priest, Jesus, who has paid for our sins and who is praying for us every day. And so you've got this incredible background. We've got access and he's there praying for us with his blood right there. And so we've got everything we could possibly need. And so since that is true, then the the writer gives us three statements. Each one begins with a let us. My teacher at... uh, Bible school said this is a, a salad paragraph. I thought, what are you talking about, a salad? He's like, there's lettuce, lettuces everywhere. Lettuce this, lettuce this. Lettuce. It, was, it was bad, but it stuck, so obviously it was good teaching. But let us, verse 22, let us draw near in full assurance of our faith. And then verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. 
So these are things in light of what's happened, in light of what Jesus has done. Let us draw near with faith. Let us hold fast to our hope. Faith, hope, what's going to come next? Without cheating, what do you think? Faith, hope, and Love, right? Those are the three kind of main things that often get flagged up. Let us, faith, let us, hope, let us. The third one is verse 24. Let us consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. And this is the the third lettuce, the final salad that I want us to look at this afternoon. Verses 24 and 25. We'll put them up on the screen as well and just leave them up there while we're looking at these verses. So verse 24. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you see that phrase in there in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, you might find you, you kind of have a ooh, reaction. If you've been in the church for long enough, you may have been beaten over the head with this verse at some point by some uh, overzealous person that wants to remind you that it's your obligation to attend every single meeting of the church. This is a classic uh, kind of proof text for that. Actually, I don't think it's talking about that. I do think it's important to attend the meetings of the church, but I think what this is talking about is something much deeper than being together like this for a service. This is talking about participating in the life of a church. In the first century, they weren't uh, kind of doing church the way we do it. They probably didn't have a website, as far as I know. They probably didn't have published times, and you know, they probably didn't rent a school hall. There's lots of things they probably didn't do. But what it's talking about here is is the fact that these people, these Christians, were choosing to drift away from the close connection of the local church. That sense of we need one another, and they were saying, well, I'm going to kind of drift away from that. Not attending meetings is certainly going to be part of that kind of a drift. But actually, you know what? It's possible that you could have come to every single Sunday we've had here for five years, 260 of them. You could have come to every single one of them and never actually really participated in the life of the church. Just coming and sitting in rows on a Sunday does not really equate to being part of a local church. There's something else in these two verses that is much more a definition of what a local church is, and that is the one another's. See, that two, two times here, stir up one another, encouraging one another. One of my favorite preachers says that the primary activity of the church is the one anothering of one another. The, the reason that we are a church is so that we can one another one another. And there are 59 one another's in the New Testament, apparently. And two of them are right here, uh, loving one another and apparently greeting one another with a holy kiss. You can chase what that means in a non-Mediterranean context. There's uh, honoring one another. There's uh, welcoming one another. There's all sorts of one another's. But there are two right here. And really, to be part of a local church is to be one anothering one another. It's to be in each other's lives, interconnected. 
And so I want to show you actually not just two, but three things that are in these two verses, three things that are going to need to be true of us if we are going to be a church that is loving God together. Okay, three things that we've got to recognize here. First of all, notice that it begins, let us consider how. That word consider is is not just a a passing thought. It's talking about a real focused, pondering, probably prayerful thinking about how to do something. Maybe you've uh, had a three-year-old. I've got a three-year-old at the moment. When a three-year-old comes to you with a big problem, it's usually not that big of a problem. You know, they can't tie the thing or fix the thing or do the thing or find the sleeve or whatever. You know, and they come to you in floods of tears and you don't even need to think about it. You, you know, you fix it straight away. But when a 23-year-old comes home and they say, Dad, Mom, I, I need your advice. And you say, go on. And they, they tell you about this situation at university or at work or whatever with this boy, this girl, whatever the situation is. And there's this other person, there's this other thing. It tends to be way more complicated and, you, and you'll sit down, maybe you know, have a cup of coffee or whatever, sit at the breakfast bar, and you say, tell me about it. And you'll ask questions, and, and you'll think, and you might even end up getting out a piece of paper saying, hang on, help me out, I'm old. So who's that other person, and what, what did they say, and why, why is that a problem? And you, know, and you kind of, you have to piece it all together. That's the kind of thinking that this word consider is speaking about. It's the kind of thinking that a counselor does. Or a pastor, when, the, when they sit, a parent sitting with a grown child and just hearing and listening and pondering and saying, look, I, I've got no simple answer, but let me pray about it and I'll come back to you. you know, it's going to be okay. We'll figure this out. God's got it. Let's, let's pray and think. It's a really deliberate kind of thinking. And what's the writer saying here? He's saying, let us consider how. Let us be the kind of people in the church that that think deeply, at length, pondering and praying about how to stir one another to love and good deeds. I find that incredibly challenging. Isn't it easy to just go through life pondering how your team is going to climb up into the Champions League positions or pondering how you're not going to lose your job this week or pondering how you can get that thing fixed with the, the wrong tool that you, you know, or the wrong part that you picked up at Wix. It's so easy to spend our time pondering how things that, that are not so critical. But, but when do we sit and ponder prayerfully the people we care about at church? I wonder if you've, you've done that in, in recent days. Maybe your own children. That's, that's maybe a bit no, more normal, isn't it? Last thing at night, just to think, what in the world are we going to do? How can we help this child get it? It tends to happen more as parents, but as friends, how can I help Dave? How can I help Tim? Let me pray about it. Let me ponder it. Paul, you know, the, the, Lord, what can I do? Ben, you know, how can I, to really consider how I can be helpful for some other people to grow spiritually? That's what this verse is is urging us to. It's saying, hey, whatever your project list, 
Put some people on there. They're not projects. They're people. But put them on your prayer list and do some serious thinking. Because if we're going to grow, if we're going to love God together, then it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen as each one of us with our own small connection, kind of immediate friends. As we ponder and pray, how can I help? How can I spur on? How can I encourage this person to grow spiritually? We need to do some real praying some real pondering, some real thinking. That's the first thing. And the second is connected to it. And the second one is spurring one another on, stirring up one another. Now, that is an interesting phrase, stirring up one another, because usually when you see the words stir up, it sounds like stir up trouble, right? It doesn't sound too positive. And the word that's used here is not really a positive word. Normally, it's a negative word. It's used in the book of Acts to speak about a a sharp disagreement between two people. It's something that is uh, intensely aggravating. It literally comes from sour wine in its kind of root there. And, and, And you can imagine, you know, you get a glass of wine, you take a sip, and it's sour. It kind of makes you react, right? That's what this word is talking about. Ponder how. You can cause a reaction in others. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? What the writer here is saying is not we should go around antagonizing and annoying each other. It's saying we need to prod and poke each other in order for each other to grow. Let Let me not talk about each other. Let me just talk about you. You know that there are areas in your life where you struggle, right? And you may think you're the only person in the world that struggles, or you may realize that we all do, but, but you know there are certain things that you really struggle with in the Christian life. There's some things that you do great, and just, you know, it's second nature, you just can't help yourself, you're just bubbling over with that, but this, this is tough. We need one another. We need to give one another permission to inflict pain if necessary to help us to do well in those areas. A few examples. Maybe, maybe you go to a friend and say, you know what? I know from what the Bible teaches that I should be generous with my money, but I really struggle with that. I find it so much easier to hoard and to, to treat myself. I find it really hard to be generous. I give you permission to prod me to be a giver. <coughs> That, that takes, that takes a, a level of friendship, right? Hey, uh, just thinking about what Peter said on Sunday. I know that I'm supposed to spend time with my family, but honestly, with the tension at home and the difficulty with the kids, I find it a whole lot easier to hide. And I'm not going to say golf because that would you know, be wrong. I, I find it a whole lot easier to hide fishing. And so I go fishing all the time, but honestly, it's because I don't want to go home. And I know that's wrong, and and I'm giving you permission to hold me accountable to go home and be the husband and dad that my family needs. Would you prod me in that area? Hey, I know that I need to be guarding my heart, but I just keep going back to pornography. I just keep going back, and it's like it's got a grip on me, and no matter what I do, I can't seem to stop. Would you get in my face, and would you inflict pain in my life to help me to stop because I don't want to do that anymore? Whatever it is, whether it's an attitude, a sin, a struggle, whatever it is, something major, something minor, you know what it is. Who have you given permission 
to follow up with you about that? Who have you asked to ask you? Who have you asked to to say, look, I want you to make my life uncomfortable when I'm drifting in those ways because I really want to love God and I need you so that together I can love God. Who do you have in your life like that? And who is there in your life that you feel that you can approach and that you can go to and that you can talk to about the tough stuff? Because that's what this verse is talking about. It is talking about inflicting pain. I'm trying to think of an analogy, uh, an illustration. It's, it's kind of like the cattle prod, right? It's, it's like the spurs on the back of the cowboy's boots. It's, it's like the barking sheepdog that's ready to nip at a sheep that doesn't do what it's told. And before you get upset about all the animal cruelty in my illustrations, I'm not saying you should do any of those things, but I'm saying that as humans, we need that. We need human being interaction with people who love us, with people who are ready uh, to get in our face and to tell us, you've got to stop. You've got to cut that out. What you're doing is wrong. it's, It's awkward because we've become a culture where because of this kind of radical individualism and this sort of all things are fine, we've become a culture that says, if anyone dares to challenge me, If anybody even hints at something that makes me feel uncomfortable, well, they're obviously sinning. They're obviously doing something wrong. And they should say sorry because they offended me. I'm sorry, that's not biblical. Just like a cattle prod or a barking sheepdog or whatever, the reason for those things is for good. And there will be times where someone challenges you, where someone confronts you when someone says, hey, you're out of line and I love you too much to let you drift. And instead of defending and guarding and attacking and you know, wailing about how nasty they were, you should fall on your knees and thank God for a friend who loves you enough to tell you that you're drifting. You see, we've basically got two options. We can have the untouchable individualism of our culture where no one can ever dare to challenge anything Or we can have Christian community. Can't have both. Which do we want? Do we want to float around where everything is fine and everything is is uncriticizable and everything is because it's my thing, it's my thing? Or do we want to be part of a community where we say to people, hey, I know you love me and I trust you to tell me when I'm out of line. Would you do that? Let me encourage you to to pray about this and then to proactively make a move to talk to some people to say, hey, I'm going to entrust to you something about me so that you can challenge me because I want you to spur me on, stir me up to love God and to good deeds. That's kind of the negative one. But then there's the positive. As well as stirring up one another, notice there's also encouraging one another. Encouraging one another is is the positive. It's the, hey, good job. Hey, I saw what you did. I appreciate what you did there. Good job for, you know, the way you handled that. Thanks for serving. Thanks for doing refreshments. Thanks for, it's the thank yous and the gratitude and the encouragement. And hey, it's great to hear you on the drums and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff we can sprinkle liberally around the church. The more we do it, the better. We've actually got a problem on that side. Not this church, but this culture. The English culture, we're much more comfortable with sarcasm and cutting remarks and banter than we are with genuine encouragement. 
Let's go against that. Let's be a church that says, you know what? I appreciate you. And I thank you for what you've done. Let's be a church that encourages. It seems to me, and I I can't prove this, but it seems to me that the reason this often doesn't work in churches is because we get this backwards. Maybe you've been a part of a church where where, where there's there's somebody or there are some people where, where they encourage very sparingly and only of limited few, but they're very quick to point out every sin in everyone's life. That's not the way it works. We should be pointing out the encouragements in everyone. Let's encourage everybody as much as we can. We need that. But then let's prayerfully ponder. Let's consider carefully. Okay, so who is it within my kind of closer circle of friends? Who is it and how is it that I can prod and poke? (coughs) Who is it that I can love enough to say, hey, you're doing that and it's wrong. We can't be vigilantes going around criticizing everyone for everything. That doesn't help a church be healthy. But we've all got friends close enough. And if we consider, and if we stir up, and if we encourage, then we can be a community that is loving God together and doing good works that that is just beyond anything this world can generate. Let me tell you a story that might not immediately seem connected, but it's just resonated with me thinking about this. Hopefully you'll see the connection at the end. About 20 years ago, I heard Tony Campolo speak. Some of you will have heard of Tony Campolo. He's a sort of a sociologist, lecturer, Christian preacher type. Uh, Lives in Philadelphia or lived in Philadelphia. And he was invited to Hawaii tough gig, right? So he's in Hawaii for a conference. Hawaii is about six time zones away from Philadelphia. Six time zones equals you wake up at the wrong time. So he was wide awake at three o'clock in the morning and starving. And so here he is in Honolulu, Hawaii, three o'clock in the morning, desperately hungry, went for a walk through the streets, trying to find somewhere where he could find something to eat. Everywhere was shut. Eventually up a, a side street, he found this a kind of greasy diner, you know, sort of place that's kind of cool in a film but not so great when you're sat in it. He said, I didn't touch the menu. Just, there's too much on there, you know. But he, he sat at this stool at this kind of long bar where the food was served. There weren't booths or tables or anything, but he sat there at 3, 3.30 in the morning with a cup of coffee and a donut or whatever uh, people from Philadelphia eat at 3 in the morning. And, and he was there just kind of, passing the time when this group of prostitutes came in, 3.30 in the morning, and they sat all around him. They were talking to each other, and he was kind of sort of hiding in the midst of it, not sure what to do or where to look. And he listened to these two sat right next to him, have this conversation. One of them said, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other one replied something along the lines of, well, what do you want me to do about it? Make you a cake or something? Would you want a party? And she wished she probably hadn't said anything, but she just said, no, 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 I don't expect anything. I've never had a cake or a party in my life. That struck him. He sat there, and eventually they they left, and it was just him and the owner, and he called the owner over. He said, the the women that were, were sat around me, do you know them? Oh, yeah, they come in here every night, same time. The one sat right next to me. Yeah, that was Agnes. Agnes. Hey, you know what? It's her birthday tomorrow. What do you say we throw her a party? And the owner looked at him like, you're mad. 
throw her a party. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll decorate the place. And the owner said, all right, fine, I'll make a cake. Uh, and so plans were made. And he did his conference thing, went to the local shop, got all sorts of crepe paper and whatever you do to, to make a diner look better. And the next morning he got there at 2.30 and he spruced the whole place up. You know, the crepe paper everywhere, a big sign on the mirror behind the, 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 the kind of bar area. Happy birthday, Agnes. Uh, the owner's wife had got the word out onto the streets and literally the entire nightlife of Honolulu had gathered by 3.15. They were all crammed in, waiting for Agnes and her friends to arrive. And he said at 3.30 on the dot, they walked in and everybody shouted out, happy birthday, Agnes. He said it was incredible to watch her reaction. Her knees just gave way. They helped her into a chair and she just sat there stunned. And then they all sang, happy birthday, dear Agnes, and tears were pouring down her face, and and Harry, the owner, came out with the cake and put it in front of her and and said, come on, blow the candles out. She couldn't do it. She's just weeping. And then he put the knife in her hand. He said, come on, cut the cake, and she just sat there. And after a while, she looked up at Tony Campolo. Obviously, he'd arranged this whole thing, and she looked at him, and she said, would it be okay if I don't cut the cake? He said, sure. Sure. She said, would it be okay if I take the cake? I, I want my mum to see it. And Campola said, yeah, sure. And so she stood up. He said, wait, what now? And she said, yeah, I'll be right back. And she walked out, carried the cake, and left. And there he was with a, you know, a diner full of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning and just dead silence. He said, I didn't know what to do. So I said, hey, let's pray for Agnes. He closed his eyes and he started praying. And prayed that God would save her and transform her life and rescue her from the life that she was in. And forgive her for her sin and and put back everything that had been taken away, ripped away by, by all the men over all the years. And that God would just bring transformation and put his spirit in her and give her a new life. And he prayed this prayer and he got to the end of the prayer and he said, in Jesus' name, amen. And he opened his eyes and the owner of the cafe was right in front of him, looked angry, staring him down. He said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. Campolo said, yeah, yeah, I am. He said, hey, what kind of church do you belong to anyway? Campolo just said the first thing that came into his mind. He said, I belong to a church that throws parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) Harry said, "I, I don't believe it. That kind of church does not exist. Because if that kind of church existed, I'd join it. Now, That kind of story is like, whoa, imagine how cool that is. That's one guy doing a bizarre thing and telling the story lots of times. But isn't that very Christ-like? Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus got in trouble for hanging out with the rough crowd, the wrong people from the wrong part of town who did the wrong kinds of things. And Jesus' grace was absolutely radically transformative. And it seems to me that if we're going to be a church that that is able to represent Christ in that kind of radical way, it's not going to happen because we just kind of drift along doing what's easy and what's normal. If we're a church that just says, how are you? I'm fine, and never gets into each other's life. If we're a church that never really sits down and prayerfully ponders, what can I do to help this person love and be spurred on to good deeds. If, if we're not the kind of church that w- is willing to, to, to spur each other on, to, to inflict pain for the good of the, each other, carefully, prayerfully, if we're not the kind of church that, that just spreads around massive amounts of encouragement, 
If we're not a church that is so gripped by the grace of God, so amazed by what he's done for us, that we're willing to do the uncomfortable, the unlikely, and the unusual, if we're not that kind of church, we're just going to drift along being very normal and looking just like the world around us in most ways. But what if, what if God's grace grabs a hold of our hearts at such an incredible level that we say, you know what? From now on, I'm going to consider. I'm going to make a list of my closest friends at church, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to help me to come up with ways to help them to love him. What can I do, Lord, to help this person to love you more? What can I do to spur this person on to love and to good deeds? And every time I come to church, every time I see someone from church, every opportunity I have, how can I be the most encouraging me that I can be? Because we need encouragement. And we need close friends who are willing to get in our face and tell us, because they love us, when we're out of line. All of that's possible if we're gripped by the first part of the paragraph that I didn't preach. All of that's possible if we are absolutely convinced of what Jesus has done and how Jesus has paid the price and how Jesus is our priest and how Jesus is praying for us and how Jesus has made it possible for us to have faith and hope as well as love. And in light of what he's done, here we are, loving God together. I don't know what we can come up with that's kind of like the Campolo story. That's not the point. What I do know is that by God's grace... As we love God together, he's going to do things in us and through us that is going to have a far greater impact than we will ever have if we drift along doing what's easy, what's comfortable, and what's normal.